Welcome to the Tanya Acker Show. Congressman Ro Khanna is back on the show today. He represents California's 17th Congressional District, which includes Silicon Valley. He is a member of the House Armed Services Committee. I think during the interview I said House Intelligence, so uh, my bad. He's also a member of the House Select Committee on the strategic competition between the United States and the Chinese Communist Party. We talk about our relationship relationship with China, the war in Ukraine, the October 7th terrorist attack by Hamas, and the war in Gaza. We also talk about the brawls or the threats of brawls on Capitol Hill, uh, his place of business. And in a refreshing departure from that, we also talk about really interesting debate he had with presidential candidate Vivek Ramaswamy. And I will say this, whatever the substantive disagreements between the two of them or that any of us may have with either or both of them, it was a remarkable example of political civility in an age where that just (laughs) doesn't happen very often. So here I am with Congressman Ro Khanna. Thank you so much for being here and don't forget to subscribe. Welcome back to the podcast, Congressman Ro Khanna. It is so great to have you here. Tanya, it's an honor to be back on. Crazy week here on the Hill, so I'm glad we're getting to do it. Well, listen, first things first, I want to make sure that you are okay. You work in what seems to be a super dangerous place. Want to make sure that you've made it through the day with no threats of violence, uh, nobody threatening to get into a brawl with you. Uh, Just want to make sure that we don't need to send a security team out uh, to keep you away from all of the playground antics. What the heck is going on up there, Ro? I mean, seriously, (laughs) what's happening? Well, no one's challenged me to a duel yet. I may not be, a, a, I don't know what it's, what's going on. I haven't had a formal challenge, and I've managed to make it back to my office without any uh, a, a, anyone elbowing me. But it's, uh, it, it's really absurd uh, to see the antics uh, uh, on the other side. And it would be funny if it weren't for the fact that we're voting every day on very, very serious budget cuts. I mean, look at the stuff they're voting on. If you had a high school group of students uh, and you had to explain to them what they're voting on, you'd be uh, at a loss for words. They want to make the salary of the NIH director $1. The NIH does all the research for Alzheimer's, for cancer. They want to cut funding for science education. I mean, who wants to cut science and math education right now? They want to cut all student aid. If, you ever, if you're a student, you need to get a Pell Grant. You need to get financial aid. Republicans want to cut it. They want to cut Social Security. They want to cut Medicare. And every day, that's why I was running from votes, we're voting basically on their cuts to basic things that people need to make their lives uh, work. You mentioned uh, the salary of the NIH director. NIH is the National Institutes of Health uh, people, for those of you um, who aren't aware of the abbreviation. Do you think that some of the antics, and, and, and they really are antics, how much of a distraction is it from the work of the people's business? I mean, you know, we can kind of laugh about it, but we just saw <laughs> a United States senator uh, challenge a witness to a fight, and the witness seemed ready to take him up on it. Um, I mean, honestly, I, I work 
on a court show, Ro. We don't let folks act like this on my show. What is this about? What do you think is animating uh, some of this really overt aggression uh, that we're seeing right now? That's a great question. I, I think it's about politics as theater. I think the reality is that a lot of Americans are upset and frustrated with their lives. I mean, they uh, see that it costs a lot to get a house. It costs uh, a lot to pay rent. Uh, the uh, incomes haven't kept up. A lot of jobs were offshore. The American dream seems hard to, uh, to reach. And it is hard to provide structural solutions with globalization, with AI, with the internet, uh, to that challenge of so many people feeling the American dream is slipping away. It is much easier, though, to say, we get your anger, we get your grievance, and we're going to do theatrics to, to show that we're fighting on your side. And unfortunately, uh, what politics has too often become is this politics of symbolism, uh, doing these grand gestures that's not going to do anything for people at their kitchen table, but tries to create the appearance that someone is on their side. I think also just to put it in context, it's important for people to know that uh, this is not the first time we've seen people on the Hill act out. In the 19th century, Charles Sumner uh, got beaten with a stick by a representative. Uh, I think it was Rep. Brooks from South Carolina over a fight over slavery. So well, that, was, that was a real issue. I mean, that was abolition, <laughs> right? I mean, he was calling for the end of slavery. I mean, you know, someone's going to be beaten up for calling for the end of slavery. I mean, th 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 that's one thing. But this is, these, these are just theatrical fights. They're not over some deep substantive issue like someone standing up against slavery. Well, and query whether or not people should be beating each other up on the House floor or threatening to get into fights in the U.S. Senate. In any event, um, it does remind me and I, I, of this, of something you just did, um, which was not to get into a fight uh, with someone on the other side or threaten them with violence, but you recently debated a presidential candidate, Vivek Ramaswamy, in, uh, in New Hampshire. Now, the two of you, very different sides of the aisle, very different perspectives, but I urge folks, if they haven't seen it, to take a look. I thought, Roe, that it was a remarkable demonstration of political civility. I mean, that really is how people who are running the country are supposed to go at it. So congratulations on doing that. And tell me how and why it came about. Well, thanks, Tanya. Uh, the, my alma mater, the University of Chicago, wanted to, to have us there uh, to discuss how two children of immigrants have different views of the future of America, the economy, race. And so I said, yes, Vivek said, I'll do it, but I want to do it in New Hampshire where I'm campaigning. I agreed and went to St. Anselm, but I said, Vivek, look, I'm going to do it as long as it's substantive. We should have a heated dis disagreement on the issues, but I don't want gotcha shots and uh, any uh, uh, in, in sort of zingers. And uh, he agreed. And, you know, the highest compliment I got is that I brought out the best of Vivek Ramaswamy. It doesn't mean that people didn't disagree with his positions. At the end, I think uh, we uh, showed how his views on climate change or just a parochial American foreign policy were not the best for the country. But people said, OK, why can't he be like this, the way he was with you in the debates with the Republicans? And I actually think he would have done better had he shown the same side that he did with me. I mean, what people in this country want is substantive, solution-oriented conversations that are going to improve their lives. I thought that it was precisely that. The differences between the two of you were quite clear. And I think that irrespective of whatever policy differences folks might have with either one of you, uh, it 
moved forward in a way that we're just not used to seeing anymore. I mean, we are not used to seeing policymakers engage so substantively and and so respectfully. And and I think that's sad. You know, it kind of, something the two of you talked about that uh, reminds me of how we started this conversation was what I think is a fundamental difference uh, between you and candidate Ramaswamy about the role of government. Uh, And it really came to the fore. You pointed out that government's really been responsible for helping fuel a lot of innovation. Mr. Ramaswamy really takes issue with the notion of government intervention. Uh, A lot of the facts are on your side, Ro, to be sure. And I want you to talk about that because it's true that government has been an engine in fueling different industries, especially in new areas. However, to his point, How can one expect the American people to trust an institution that is governed by folks who are threatening fights with witnesses on Capitol Hill? How can, you know, when you think about the theater and the antics, how can people trust government anymore when really, you know, what we're seeing are things that wouldn't be accepted on elementary school playgrounds? I think this is part of the Republican playbook to uh, lower trust in government so they can massively cut government. Uh, the reality is that the people who uh, are heading the agencies that lead to the advances are not in Congress. They're the head of DARPA, which helped get us GPS, uh, helped get us the internet. They're the head of NIH, which are made the major leaps in making sure we had Moderna and Pfizer's uh, technology to, to be able to have the COVID vaccines. Uh, They are uh, the people in uh, the government who helped make sure that uh, everyone in this country eventually could be connected to to the internet. And the the internet in in many ways was America's gift to the world. But those agencies uh, need the funding and the funding is determined by Congress. It's not Congress running the agencies. And those agencies need to have competent people there. I, I give Joe Biden credit for appointing competent people. Most presidents, uh, with the exception of one, uh, took qualifications very seriously, whatever the ideologies, and appointing people to those positions. So the key is uh, have competent people in those positions and have a Congress that is uh, functional about fulfilling our funding requirements. Another thing that came up and that was really a, a point of market disagreement between you and candidate Ramaswamy was your views about the war on Ukraine. Um, and you talked about the importance and the necessity of digesting information from experts, uh, from intelligence experts. You sit on the House Intelligence Committee. Talk to us about where you think this war is going. Uh, it looks interminable. Well, the biggest benefit uh, that we've had of having Ukraine stand up to Putin is we've uh, given Xi Jinping a lot to think about. He was really uh, increasing his aggression uh, in the Taiwan Strait. And our uh, CIA, our intelligence agencies have said that the biggest thing that has given him pause is seeing how hard it has been for Putin and seeing the world mobilize against Putin. So it helps not just keep Ukraine sovereignty, it's also a check against China for those concerned about China's ambition. Now, I would say we have done a lot to to, to win. I mean, the the Ukraine has. Uh, They have prevented Russia from getting anywhere near uh, Kiev. They have maintained large sovereignty. Russia still is in the Donbass, and that needs to, uh, they need to leave that area to to, to resolve. 
But I do. I said we should have two tracks. We need to keep helping Ukraine so that they continue to, to, to ensure that Russia does not take over and at the same time promote uh, diplomacy. Uh, are you not concerned that our posture toward Russia, and this is something else that you came up in your debate, are you concerned that, your, that our posture vis-a-vis -vis Russia uh, will embolden China in some way? I think it's the exact opposite. Because we're standing up to Russia, uh, China has uh, now been in check, and they realize that they can't just march into Taiwan without the world having uh, a very strong response. Uh, it, Russia and China already have cozied up. I mean, uh, China's Xi Jinping is uh, lavish praise on Putin. Putin is on Xi Jinping. Uh, it's not like the 1970s with the Nixon strategy, where China came to the United States concerned about Soviet invasion on their border. Uh, now China and uh, Russia share a lot of autocratic tendencies. So we're not going to be able to break uh, that relationship. But what we need to do is make sure that they both realize that the United States, the democratic world, will not tolerate for China to become a hegemon in Asia or for Russia to have expansionist intentions in Eastern Europe. And certainly they have indicated uh, that they are bosom buddies. But do you see some glimpses of hope, just glimmers, maybe glimpses is too strong, but glimmers of hope or a softening rather uh, in relations and relations between us and the Chinese? I don't think we should get into a Cold War with China, but what we need to do is make sure we rebalance our trade deficit. I mean, for too long, we had so much of our manufacturing go offshore. We should have an explicit goal of reducing that trade deficit with China. We need to make sure that we're bringing the Uyghur situation, Tibet situation, uh, and Hong Kong situation as human rights concerns to China. And we need to make sure uh, that China is not taking aggressive action in the Taiwan Strait. At the same time, the president today is meeting with uh, Xi Jinping, and uh, I, I think it's important to have engagement. My hope is that we can have military-to-military -military communication reestablished. We talked to even the Soviets during the height of the Cold War. It's important for us to engage where we need to engage. What do you think is going to come of this meeting between the president and Xi Jinping? My hope is that we'll get military-to-military -military communication back, that we'll have some way of having our armies, our militaries talk to each other so that there's less of a chance of accidental war. Uh, I also hope the president will be very clear about the need to rebalance the economic relationship. It's not in China's interest just to be a manufacturing power with no finance or tech economy, no service economy. And it certainly hurt us to lead, have our manufacturing base lead. Let's uh, turn to yet another uh, foreign conflict, uh, the hot war. Uh, taking place in uh, Gaza right now. You recently refused to sign a ceasefire resolution, uh, which resulted in some protesters sitting in in your office. We'll get to that. But first, tell us why you did not want to sign a resolution calling for a ceasefire. Well, the October 7th attack were brutal. I just met with families whose hostages uh, are still in Gaza. I mean, a three-year-old girl Kids were in Gaza taken, whose parents were brutally murdered. We first need the hostages to be released. And we need to understand that the Hamas terrorists who killed uh, 1,200 civilians in Israel have to be brought to justice. Now, I have said that uh, there needs to be a targeted surgical operation uh, that doesn't result in mass casualties of innocent Palestinians. Uh, but Israel has a responsibility to bring the terrorists to justice. What does that 
surgical operation look like in the context of Hamas embedding itself in near and in close proximity to civilians? What does a targeted operation, in your view, look like? Well, it's very difficult, but let's say you have a hospital, you have a school, you have Hamas who's purposely there because they want to put their military, they want to put their uh, fighters in places which are dense civilian areas. One way that Israel's been doing it has just been bombing those dense civilian areas. I, I don't think that is the best way uh, to do it. I don't think Israel's taking every uh, opportunity to minimize casualties, but I said don't bomb dense areas. You should track those Hamas terrorists, wait till they leave that uh, area, which they will at some point, wait till they're in the tunnels, and fight them there. Now, I understand that that's not an easy solution. It's, it's going to take more operational patience, uh, which is the term of art that the military uses. Look, it took us 10 years to get Osama bin Laden. When you have, you're weighing hundreds of civilians to get after a few terrorists, that is a morally very difficult thing. And I, I, I just think we need to have enough patience to get the terrorists without having to inflict that kind of damage on civilians, because otherwise you're going to breed more resentment in future terrorists. You have, uh, though, as you did again just here, uh, reiterated Israel's right to defend itself. You refused to sign the ceasefire resolution, which resulted in the sit-in in your office. Tell me about, like, was it disturbing to you? Were you annoyed? Did you talk to the, the people who were sitting in? What does that look like when uh, protesters decide to take over your place of business? Well, to their credit, they were uh, nonviolent and civil, and I, I, I did call it and called other 40 of them, and then I said I'd do a Zoom. And I was happy to do the Zoom. It was a 30-minute call. Uh, and there I engaged and listened. I mean, some of the people were chanting genocide row, which I don't mind uh, people hurling insults, but I think it's a, a, a total watering down of the word genocide when you start to just label uh, people in that way. I mean, genocide is such a serious thing, and it uh, should be taken uh, very, very seriously to, to, to lob an accusation against the president or uh, a member of Congress like that. I also think some of the, the folks, you know, they said, well, we took Native American land. Yes, we did. Well, some of the protesters wanted us to give it back. I said, no, I'm not for America just dissolving and giving back the land to Native Americans. So, you know, obviously they come from a perspective, but it's a it's a very, very heated and emotional issue. I think it's one of the things, again, just sort of hearkening back briefly uh, to your conversation with Ramaswamy, I think it is so refreshing to just see two people who strongly disagree engage one another in a respectful, substantive way. Let's talk about another issue, AI. Now, you recently used ChatGPT to write a piece of legislation. I know that it didn't go out like that uh, in final form, but talk to us about that. And then I really want to get your views on how people can better understand and use this technology. It's not going away. But first, uh, tell us about your bill. Well, the bill uh, helps try to improve search for federal agencies. And maybe have you noticed that if you go on a federal agency, if you have to f f do your taxes or go to the IRS agency or figure out things about COVID, I mean, you get 50 different links, and then you look at the search box, and you type in your question, and you get a, just a, a horde of information at you that's not responsive. But if you do it on a private web website, it's often so elegant, and it works. And so the bill says, how do we make federal government websites work so that the consumer, the person who needs the services, is centered? 
And ChatGPT helped come up with the first draft of a bill. I say that what AI can help with is not doing the final version. You need a lot of human judgment, human understanding. But if you're having a kind of writer's block and you can't put something on paper, you can give a few prompts and get ChatGPT to generate ideas. Uh, similar to uh, the writer's uh, issues with the studios. I mean, look, ChatGPT is never going to produce Hamlet or even Avatar, the, the, the version I've seen. But can it help you get started with some, some ideas to bounce around? Sure. And then I think the key is going to be how human imagination, creativity uses this new technology uh, to, be, uh, to enhance our uh, performative capabilities. And that we've always, well, I don't want to say always, but we've been using sort of different aspects of this technology for a long time, right? I mean, is it spell check? If you spell check a document, uh, that's an early-ish version of AI, wouldn't you say? I mean, you know, this technology is not entirely new to us. No, of course not. It's, in many ways, it's autocomplete, right? I mean, when you're texting someone, you know how they'll, a lot of times they'll complete your text, complete your sentence, guess what you're going to write. Uh, and that's just a form of uh, auto-completing uh, your sentences. And AI is just doing that in a huge scale. It's taking ideas you have and looking for uh, the universe of, and, and saying, what is the pattern of, uh, uh, that, that we can uh, deduce based on, on uh, all of the data? What is the status? What's the status of your bill right now, Ro? Well, it's, it's gotten pretty far. We're, we're, we've gotten good co-sponsors, Republicans. We're in a good place on the committee. We have to push it through now with the, the committee. I know you are busy. Um, I know that in between uh, all of the brawling up there, that there is some business <laughs> that folks like you are uh, engaging in. So I don't want to take too much of more of your time. But I do want to know this, uh, Representative Khanna. As you sit from your vantage point with access to all of the information that you have, far more than we lay people do, far more than folks do who even, you know, study issues around security and intelligence, what worries you? What scares you right now? Well, the internal division is, is, is the biggest concern for me, both uh, the domestic extremism and terrorism, the, the hate of anti-Semitism and anti-Islamophobia that we're seeing uh, the uh, hate that we saw in targeting of uh, African-Americans in Florida and in other parts of the country, uh, that is actually the, the thing that concerns me the most, domestic uh, extreme violence uh, and the hate we're seeing among each other. Uh, obviously, there are external threats, the, the threat of climate and the extraordinary climate events that we're seeing, the, the threat that China is posing and that Russia is posing, but it's the internal that concerns me the most. When I watched the debate uh, between you and candidate Ramaswamy, I could not help but be moved by the fact that uh, here are two men who, you know, one is helping run the country, one is vying for the opportunity to be the leader um, of this country. And, you know, I'll just be candid, like my great grandmother uh, would not have expected to see uh, you and Vivek right. Ramaswamy on that. And maybe your great-grandparents wouldn't have either. It's something that made me hopeful uh, because it reminds me that there are certain sorts of divisions uh, and certain sorts of things that have separated us uh, that we can and will and uh, will continue to transcend. What makes you hopeful, Ro? Well, I think that's well said. I said America is moving forward in spite of itself. I mean, despite 
all of the efforts to, to block progress. Uh, two days ago, we had the first uh, black American sworn in uh, to represent Rhode Island, a state that's been there since the beginning, one of the original 13 colonies that's been sending members of Congress since 1790. And finally, they sent somewhat African American to the Congress in the year 2023. But you see this happening. You see uh, the character of America changing. And no matter how much we're People want to stop it. They can't. We are going to become a multiracial, multi-ethnic democracy that's cohesive. Uh, just that the path is not as linear as we may have hoped when Obama tried to inspire the country. It's going to take more hard work. It's going to take more sacrifice. There's going to be more backlash. Uh, but ultimately, I believe we'll get there. It may take place in fits and starts, but it does move forward. Congressman Ro Khanna, I appreciate your time so much. Thank you for being back here. Stay safe. Um, if you need some backup up there, let me know. I'll see what I can do. Uh, but on a very serious note, I always enjoy talking to you and really appreciate your being here. It's a real honor. Thank you, Tanya. You always do your homework. Really appreciate the conversation. <laughs> 